Uh, we're in Mark chapter 2. Let me direct your attention there. We're going to jump right in to what we're studying today. Let's go ahead and finish chapter 2 of Mark's gospel this morning. So starting with verse 23, you can look at your own copy of the Word of God, or you can just go ahead and take a peek at the screen, the words that are in front of you. But Mark 2, verses 23 through 28, Mark records for us here, One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they, the disciples and Jesus, made, the, made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he, Jesus, said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So there has been growing tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, and we've been seeing this. Hostility has been brewing between Christ and the teachers of the law, the religious elite. Why? Well, let's review really quickly. Let's review what we've already studied in chapters 1 and now in chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel. First of all, Jesus upstages them, the religious elite, in the synagogue at Capernaum. You'll remember that early on. He breaks the law. After he teaches with power, he breaks the law, and he touches a leper. He tells a paralyzed man in another setting that his sins are forgiven. Then he heals him as a demonstration of his power and his authority, his ability to forgive his sins. Jesus has already called a tax collector to be one of his disciples, this hated man, Levi, who had basically alienated himself from his family and his community in Capernaum. And Jesus not only calls Levi to be his follower, but then he goes to his house and parties all night with all of Levi's sinner friends. He's not really endearing himself to the religious elite. Finally, Jesus and his disciples do not fast, observing the acts of piety that the Pharisees observe. And when he's questioned about it, he even says that it would be inappropriate for him to fast, making what the Pharisees and the religious elite do seem not only obsolete, but wrong. We haven't even made it out of chapter 2 yet, church. Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with endearing himself to religious people. Doesn't seem to be much in his thinking at all. It appears as though Jesus lived and taught and led others without regard to what the authorities of his day, the spiritual religious authorities of his day thought of him. And now it would seem that they're looking for opportunities to accuse him. 
that these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, some of them, the teachers of the law, the PhDs in theology, are looking for a way to get rid of him, at the very least to discredit him as a teacher. So one Sabbath day in our passage, coming into verse 23 of Mark chapter 2, one Sabbath day they notice that the disciples of Jesus are picking grain by hand and eating it. Just get that image in your mind. They're walking through a field and they're picking some grain off of stalks and eating it. I mean, whoa, call the police. Capital offense here. The disciples are public enemy number one. Well, let's make sure that we understand the issue before we pick a side. There was nothing wrong, first of all, with the act of what the disciples were doing. The issue is not with them eating grain by hand. That's not the issue. It didn't even matter that they didn't own the field. I mean, that's the implication in the passage. They don't own this field that they're walking through. They're outside of Capernaum, and they're walking through some farmer's field, and they're picking grain and popping it in their mouth and enjoying a snack. This was actually entirely acceptable behavior according to their laws. The Old Testament law actually made provision for a hungry person to do this very thing. It was written in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. This is part of the Mosaic law. And this provision is actually made it for this circumstance. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in other words, it's okay to have a snack from your neighbor's fields, but the moment you break out the garden tools, you've gone too far. You can't, you can't bring in their harvest, but you can pluck a few pieces of grain and enjoy a snack. Well, this is exactly what the disciples are doing. Their actions were completely within the parameters of this provision made in Deuteronomy chapter 23. So what then is the cause of their accusation? Why do the Pharisees accuse Jesus? Why do they confront him with this? Well, the issue is that this happens on the Sabbath, and it's very obvious from the the verses we just read. The law of Moses had set that day aside as holy. And this is the basis of their accusation. You see, there were a completely different set of rules for the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees most likely are accusing Jesus of allowing to break the Sabbath in two ways. First of all, according to their understanding, the disciples were traveling on the Sabbath. Now, this Sunday and next, I'm going to be talking a bit about legalism. I'm just going to open the door this Sunday, and next Sunday we'll step through it. But we're going to have a little bit of a frank conversation about the way legalism works. The teachers of the law according to their rules of this day, allowed for someone to walk up to 1,999 paces on the Sabbath. But the moment you took that 2,000th step, you've broken the Sabbath. Now, this could have come in really handy for guys who wanted to get out of chores at home from their wives. 
the honey to honey do list, right? Uh, dear, can you go do the dishes in the kitchen? I'd love to help you out, honey, but I've already walked 1,996 steps. Just can't do it. No, I don't think that would have been an issue. But you see how this works, right? 1,999 steps. I mean, I'm picturing all of these people during that day attempting to fulfill the oral tradition of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, counting their steps all Sabbath day long. Okay, I just took 26 steps. I took another 32 steps. 26 was 32. That's 58. Okay, I'm still good. You see, this is how legalism works. It's very likely that the disciples walked more than that on this day in an attempt to find food to eat. But here's the question, did the disciples violate Scripture in walking more than half a mile on the Sabbath, 2,000 steps? No, because this rule was a part of the Pharisees' oral tradition. It was their moral code that they believed kept them far away from breaking the law. We've talked about this, but they wanted to build a fence around God's law, around the Mosaic law. Let's not only keep people from violating the law, but let's keep them far away from violating the law. This is how legalism works. If we can prescribe what to do in any and every situation that someone might encounter, there's no chance that they will violate the law. However, this is interesting because it really leads into the confrontation with Jesus and what we can learn from this, but the second part of their accusation was that the Pharisees believed that the disciples of Jesus were working on the Sabbath. Now, this is a bigger deal, because we could write off that first part of traveling on the Sabbath. Okay, that was just a part of the Pharisees' legalism. There's no biblical precedent for that. And we could just write that off and be like, okay, no big deal, right? This one's a bit trickier. The second part of their accusation was that they were working on the Sabbath. And for this, the Pharisees could reference Scripture. Let me show you. Well, first of all, let's talk about the oral tradition, because they definitely violated the law by reaping, reaping, picking the, the grain on the Sabbath. The Mishnah, which was the written uh, records of a lot of this oral tradition that we're talking about from the Pharisees, had forbidden 39 specific types of work on the Sabbath, and one of those was reaping. It was actually written right in the Mishnah. And, and so, to be fair to the Pharisees, they had that, but also reaping on the Sabbath was prohibited by Mosaic law. And we see it here in Exodus 34, verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. So this is in the Mosaic Law. And so when they see what the disciples are doing, the Pharisees approach Jesus with their accusation. It's recorded for us in Mark chapter 2 and verse 24, returning to our main text this morning. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful in the Sabbath? Here's what the Pharisees come to Christ with and, and say, look, your, your boys, your disciples, those who are following you are messing up. Now, why do they blame Jesus for what his disciples are doing? This is actually very understandable because in their culture, and everyone would have accepted this, Christ would have seen this as being true. The reason they blame Jesus is because as, as their rabbi, he was accountable for their behavior. 
He should have corrected them in their thinking. He should have confronted them for what they were doing wrong on the Sabbath. It was his responsibility to model right behavior for them. And when the Pharisees say this to Jesus, they are probably, this one's for Dave Black, they are probably fulfilling a legal requirement. They needed to fulfill this legal requirement of giving a warning prior to prosecution for a Sabbath violation. You see, they're already working an agenda against Christ. They're already, they have already developed their plan of bringing him in in order to accuse him of violating the Sabbath. And what this is that we see in this passage is that verbal warning that needed to happen first. So how should we understand what's happening here? How should we understand what's happening in this passage? Were the disciples doing something wrong by plucking grain on the Sabbath? Dr. N.T. Wright, you have the quote on the screen for you. He points this out. He says, keeping the Sabbath was, was of course, one of the Ten Commandments. Well, we know these, and we believe in the Ten Commandments at this church. And it had been reinforced by the prophets and by subsequent Jewish teaching. It was one of their things that marked out the Jews over the centuries from their pagan neighbors. One of the things that reminded them that they were God's people, says Dr. Wright. And certainly we can just look at Scripture. We can look at what God writes in Exodus chapter 20, where here, this, is, this is the command right here. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the sea, the earth, the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is God's word. We still believe this, don't we, church? I mean, we, we have not gone the way of some churches who say we no longer need the Old Testament. I, I'm hoping to hear an amen right now. Okay, so, so we can own this, we can accept this. And then also in Exodus, a little bit later on, chapter 31, verse 14, listen to this. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, the soul shall, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Whoa, that's some strong language. And so we can certainly, lest we always villainize the Pharisees and never consider their point of view in these conversations, we can certainly understand why they've come to this belief and this understanding. Here's what I suggest we do. Instead of us trying to determine if the behavior of the disciples was right or wrong, let's look at what Jesus actually says in their defense. Amen? I think that's probably the way to go about this. I don't know about you, but I'm very willing to follow Jesus' lead. He's my rabbi. I'm following him. And so I want to respond in the way that he responds. So how does Jesus respond to their accusation? Thankfully, Mark records this for us. He tells us what Jesus says in this moment. Basically, he says to the Pharisees, this is his first of three arguments, 
These are on your note sheet, by the way, so if you want to look ahead. But basically, he says to the Pharisees, have you guys ever even read the Bible? (laughs) That's what he says to these teachers of the law, these PhDs in theology. Have you ever, have you read the Old Testament? He didn't call it the Old Testament, but have you read the scriptures that you defend so well? Jesus builds the case for the appropriateness of his disciples' behavior on the scriptures that the Pharisees were so committed to and so committed to defending. But you see, the Pharisees had knowledge without understanding. That's very possible, by the way. It's true of many people in our world. There's knowledge, but without understanding. And so Jesus is about to give them some understanding here in what happens next. And he does it so quickly. He, first of all, he appeals to a story in the Old Testament. And you have it there for you. Mark chapter 2, verses 25 through 26. This is Christ appealing to an Old Testament story. He said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and who also also gave it to those who were with him. Okay, so this bears some historical explanation for you to understand what's happening here. First of all, the bread of the presence, it was actually 12 loaves of bread during this time. 12 loaves of bread that were set out before the Lord. Every single Sabbath, they would set out these loaves of bread before the Lord, and they would sit there for a week, and at the end of that week, they would come in and exchange them with 12 new loaves of bread. And what happened to the 12, lo- the 12 old loaves of bread is the priests could eat them then. They would eat the 12 old loaves of bread once they were switched out. Here's what we can't miss from this story, though, and what Jesus says here. Don't miss this. Jesus acknowledges that David broke the law. He acknowledges that David did something that was unlawful to do. It's crystal clear in what Jesus says to the Pharisees that he understands that only the priests were allowed to eat this consecrated bread according to the law. And Jesus acknowledges this. This is actually his defense for his disciples' behavior. This is one of three defenses that he gives. David broke the law. How's it any different what my boys are doing in this grain field? David broke the law to eat. Jesus' disciples had done the same. Dr. Daniel Aiken writes about this and says, Jesus' point, simple. While it was not normal or lawful for David and his men to eat the bread of the presence, it was even more the case that God did not want them to starve. God was primarily concerned with caring for his servant David, the anointed king of Israel. Scripture nowhere condemns their actions. And that's the point. David does this in the Old Testament, and nowhere, nowhere does the Bible condemn his actions of doing what's unlawful to do. Dr. William Lane writes about it. And he says this, the relationship between the Old Testament incident, David, 
and the infringement of the Sabbath by the disciples lies in the fact that on both occasions, pious men did something forbidden. The fact that God does not condemn David for his action indicates that that the narrowness with which the scribes interpreted the law was not in accordance with the tenor of Scripture. Listen to what he says next. Jesus argues that the tradition of the Pharisees is unduly stringent and exceeds the intention of the law. Church, this is legalism. What defense does Jesus make against the accusation? After reminding them of this story from the Old Testament, he states it very clearly to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, for how knowledgeable they were, they didn't have understanding. And so Jesus feels the need to just say it to them because they weren't going to get it. And so here's what he says. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, I need to give you a little background on this statement, too, because it's pretty stinking cool what he does here. This statement that he says here, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you know where this comes from? Jesus didn't come up with it. It came from the oral tradition of the Pharisees. This was a part of the Mishnah. Jesus uses something that his accusers would have said before, would have believed was the truth, and he turns it on them to make his point. Guys, I I picture a little smile on Christ's face when he says it. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And all of those teachers of the law have been like, oh, snap. (laughs) This was a proverb from their own oral tradition, something that they believed to be true. What point is he making, though? What point is Christ making? He's acknowledging the truthfulness of the statement. He says, he's saying that God didn't create people. Hear me, church. God didn't create people to be the slaves of a day of the week. He didn't make us to be held in bondage by a day of the week, in bondage to legalism and to rituals. He created the Sabbath for the benefit of us. He gave us the Sabbath as a gift, a beautiful gift. And we'll kind of spend the rest of our time emphasizing that point. I mean, what does the Word of God say? This is not on the screen for you, but let me just read to you from Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them, men and women, male and female, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Listen to what God says at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Dr. R.C. Sproul, in thinking about this idea, wrote Jesus' point in saying that the Sabbath was made for man was that it was a gift from God to his people, a gift to keep them from wearing out their bodies. Anybody here feel worn out time to time? No, I do. I know that's age as well, but they're animals, they're servants, they're fields. However, the rabbinic tradition, the oral tradition of the Pharisees that we're talking about, had turned the Sabbath from a great gift to a laborious burden. People had to take great care not to overstep the boundaries the rabbis had set. Oh, I would love to go get a drink of water, but I've walked 1,998 steps. I guess I'll have to wait 12 hours. I don't think that's what God had in mind. The Sabbath was a gift to us. It wasn't meant for bondage. It was a beautiful gift that God gave. It wasn't meant to enslave us. Church, legalism breeds death. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Legalism breeds death. But Jesus set us free to live abundantly. Amen? He set us free to live in abundance. And then Jesus concludes his defense. He's given two arguments. He says to these guys, have you ever even read the Bible? Check out the story of David. Number two, look. We weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. And then he gives the third argument in Mark chapter 2, verse 28. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I love this. Don't you just love Jesus? <laughs> I love so many things about Jesus. One of the things I love about him is how he talks. <laughs> and this is so great. He just, uh, this is his third argument. And here he affirms his authority. He's Lord over sickness. He's proven that already. In Mark's gospel, he's Lord over the spiritual realm. He's already proven that in casting out demons. And Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. Don't miss that in this moment, what he's doing is he's claiming to be the creator. And again, this, oh, the hair on the back of those Pharisees' neck, necks would just been standing straight up. Because in saying he's Lord over the Sabbath, he's saying, I am. I, I am the one who hovered over the waters. I am the beginning. I am the Alpha. I'm the Creator. I'm the one spoken of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Jesus made the Sabbath and he gave it to us. And, and so therefore, he's sovereign over the Sabbath. And Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, had not, here's the point, as the Lord of the Sabbath, he had not corrected his disciples when they were picking those heads of grain and popping them in their mouths, 
he hadn't said a thing to them. He hadn't chastised them. He hadn't told them not to do that. He hadn't taught them a different way. And if he hadn't, then it must be okay. So here it is. Jesus lays out three arguments very quickly in this passage, and we're rounding towards home here. But he very quickly lays out this incredible defense so quickly. Three arguments. First of all, if you even read the Bible, David broke the law. Nowhere do the Scriptures condemn his actions. Number two, God created the Sabbath for our benefit. He didn't create us for the Sabbath, that we should live in bondage to it. And if those two reasons aren't enough for you, Pharisees, here's one more. You're accusing me, the Lord of the Sabbath. So step off, Jack. He didn't say that last part. My commitment to you always is that I will study, I will work hard to understand what the Scriptures say, and I will work hard to teach it to you effectively. That's my commitment. doesn't mean I can't make mistakes in my understanding. And, and, and the reason I say this is some of you have grown up in teaching that teaches a very, what I would call, a more legalistic view of Sunday and what should and shouldn't happen on a Sunday. And those Bible teachers you grew up under applied this idea of keeping a Sabbath to that. And so all I'm asking you to do is to consider the Scriptures. You have minds. You have the Holy Spirit within you. And God will lead you where he wants to lead you. And so consider what's being taught this morning and make your own decisions about this. But here are my conclusions from this passage. Here's what I believe. First of all, we ought to give every day fully to the Lord. Every day is a gift to God. Every day is sacred. Every day is holy. This is something that comes about in the new covenant. And I believe me, the teacher in me wants to take off on six tangents right now, but I'm also watching the clock. Every day should be a gift to God. And I believe that the New Testament teaches that no one day any longer takes precedence over others. And for some of you, you just got a little, whoa. Seriously. I believe the New Testament teaches that no one day takes precedence over theirs. And let me tell you why. This is why we as Christian churches, most of us, with a few exceptions, can choose to worship on Sunday. We choose to worship on Sunday because it's the day of the week that our Lord rose from the dead. Amen? But you do realize this isn't the Sabbath. It's not. The Sabbath is Saturday. And so you've been a part of a faith tradition, like me, that doesn't worship on the Sabbath. And so to apply Old Testament principles from the Mosaic Law that talked about keeping the Sabbath holy and applying them to today, I don't know that that's appropriate. And I don't know that the Apostle Paul did either. You see Colossians chapter 2 on the screen there, because here Paul is talking about not only the Sabbath, but many other things in the Mosaic Law, which was written to God's people Israel for a specific time in their history. And this is what Paul writes. He says, he's talking to Christians in Colossae, many of whom are not Jews. And he says to them, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. What's he talking about? Mosaic, the, the dietary codes. Don't let people pass judgment on you when it comes to food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
Don't let people judge you if you choose not to worship on Saturday. That's what Paul is saying. And our entire faith system and tradition as Christians grew up working on, or I'm sorry, worshiping on Sundays. And what does Paul say here? Because here's the argument that he makes to these Christians in Colossae. He says, There, these, all of these things in the Mosaic law are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And so, church, I believe that we ought to see every day, every day as a gift to the Lord, that he has entrusted us to steward for his purposes. And so every morning when we wake up, we give thanks for the breath of life within us, and we thank God for a new day in which we have been set apart and sanctified to do his will. Amen? Amen. However, I also believe, I also believe, and this is where it hits home to me, because I am what is called a workaholic. Any other workaholics out there? All right, I see a few hands. The rest of you are just lazy. Just kidding. That's what I used to think. All right, number two. There is a principle here. We should joyfully embrace times of rest as a gift from the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a beautiful gift from God to people, and we shouldn't forget about it. And so to my fellow well-intentioned workaholics in the room who have a struggle unplugging from work and observing a time of rest during the course of the week, I believe that there is still a Sabbath principle that we should follow as Christ followers. Dr. Mark Strauss wrote this. He said, It is easy to forget that the Sabbath was made for mankind and that this rest is a gift from God to help us. Oh, this is really hits hard. Help us all be all that God wants us to be, not just to do all that we want to get done. Any other workaholics bristling right now a little bit? What do you mean? God, I want to get it done for you. And he whispers back to me, you know, I'm even more concerned who you are and who you are becoming and that you know that you are one of my beloved. And Terry, that you just want to be with me. It's hard when you're rigged like I am. And anyone else who is, you know what I'm talking about. Because look at what Dr. Strauss writes next. He says, God created us first and foremost for relationship, to bask in his glory, and a Sabbath rest, whether in the form of a day off or time set aside throughout the week, allows us to stop, to rest, to reflect, and to simply enjoy communion with God in his creation. Worship team, come on up here and help me. We're going to respond with a song this morning. But as they come and get ready, let's pray together. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to pray about what we've talked about this morning from Mark chapter 2. Lord, you are sanctifying us. 
Lord, you are setting us apart as holy. May our lives each and every day reflect this truth, that the Holy One is making us holy. And so, Lord, may we give each and every day fully to you. You have given them to us each day that we wake up in the morning is a new day that you have asked us to steward for your glory. Help us to live in the light of that truth. And Father, we also want to say thank you. Thank you for Sabbath moments. Thank you for Sabbath days. Thank you for Sabbath seasons of life when we can simply be with you and enjoy your presence, God. Knowing that you care even more than what we do, you care about us and that you desire a relationship with us and that you want us to abide with you. Thank you for the gift of the Sabbath, Father. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.